Hi, I'm Paul Shari, Senior Fellow here at the Center for a New American Security and Director of our Technology and National Security Program. I'm here today joined by uh, two of the members of our tech team to talk about the new White House Initiative on Artificial Intelligence and the new DoD AI strategy, both of which just came out in the past few weeks. Joined today by Kara Frederick, Associate Fellow in the Tech Program. Kara, thanks for being here. Thanks, Paul, for having me. And Megan Lamberth, new research assistant with the tech program. Megan, welcome. Thanks, Paul. Happy to be here. And Megan, I believe this is your your first podcast with us. First ever. First ever. Yeah, All debut. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right, right into the deep end. Good. Um, well, good. Well, let's get started. Um, Megan, maybe for for listeners who aren't as familiar, could you give us a quick overview of these two documents and what are some of the key highlights in them? Yeah, totally. Uh, the executive order was signed on February 11th uh, by President Trump, titled Maintaining American Leadership in Artificial Intelligence. And it establishes this American AI initiative that's meant to be a holistic, uh, federal, federally coordinated strategy. Um, and it's shaped around these five key principles. The first principle um, is the need for this like reinvigorated alliance between the government, private industry and academia. It recognizes um, this crucial alliance in the past for uh, technology research and development throughout America's history and, and once again calls upon it to, um, for AI innovation and, and R&D. The second principle directs federal agencies to share more of their data and models um, to AI researchers, both in the, the private sector and then in research labs across academia. And this is really critical because uh, AI researchers rely on, on government data sets to um, continue innovating and advancing um, AI technologies. Um, so I think this will be a really big deal moving forward for uh, a multitude of industries, including healthcare. Uh, the third principle is the need for AI training in the US workforce. And this is where the executive order recognizes both the potential of AI to um, dramatically alter the, the U.S. workforce and create brand new jobs, but also the potential for disruption in existing work. Um, so it calls upon both service programs and federal fellowships to implement some form of AI education um, into these existing programs. The fourth principle addresses um, the mass of, of public concern over data security and privacy uh, and and says it's going to create a priority that um, to foster public trust um, in AI. And um, so I think this will be, a, of course, a continued discussion moving forward. And the final principle is the need to strengthen AI R&D collaboration and innovation with our international partners and our allies. It doesn't go into great detail about what this looks like, but um, this will, of course, be important moving forward. Excellent, thanks. And so um, the DoD also released this new AI strategy. Um, can you give us just a brief highlight of kind of some of the key themes that come out of that strategy? Yeah, absolutely. So the DoD strategy um, focuses on this idea of a human-centered approach to AI innovation uh, and development. And it places its newly established Joint Artificial Intelligence Center, the Jake, at the center of its efforts. And the Jake was just established less than a year ago, um, but its intent is it'll act as this central hub for synchronizing all A activities across all DOD components, which is a pretty large order for such a like new entity. Um, 
It also addresses the, the need, similar to the executive order, uh, of this critical alliance with private industry and with academia, as well as with our U.S. allies. Uh, and the language used throughout the document stresses the importance of AI ethics and safety um, within a military context. So instead of focusing um, really a lot on, on weapons or, or defense, it focuses a lot on how can the DOD use AI to address global challenges like humanitarian uh, disasters and, and wildfires and that sort of thing. So I thought the language used throughout the document was, was really interesting. Excellent, thanks. Kara, what strikes you as most significant about these documents? So I think first and foremost, the authors of these documents had really difficult jobs. So the way that they were able to work within the tensions of, uh, just to name a few, promoting innovation, ensuring security, uh, talking about talent, talking about the rise of competition between the United States and China, um, the way that they were able to kind of um, articulate their vision in a way that uh, doesn't promote one aspect over the other and sort of keep a balance um, with regard to this technology that is so diffuse. Because as we talked about in, uh, in the event that we held for the White House, AI is incredibly diffuse. I mean, this touches every aspect of our lives, whether a lot of Americans even know it or not, right? From uh, you're using Siri to uh, finding your way to grandma's house on the weekend. So it's, um, it's very important that they ground the documents in reality for all Americans. And I think what is most significant is that they were able to do that. And they were able to do it in a, in a couple of ways. And I think uh, their primary emphasis on uh, making sure the generation uh, that exists and uses this technology right now and the generations to come are really shored up uh, with how to uh, implement this technology within our society to uh, make sure that we have allocations for how disruptive this technology will be um, implicit in the documents is, is huge. So the talent portion too um, and the R&D portion as well. So I think R&D, talent, um, and just making sure that society is aware of what's going to happen, but also having a vision to sort of mitigate any potential disruptions in society is important. So again, um, as a signaling document too, I think the White House initiative is, is very important. And I know Megan, you'll probably talk about this in the future, but you know, having the funding to back all of this up sort of uh, makes it the, the you know, more effective. And, and Paul, you had a couple pretty interesting tweet threads about this, so everybody go look at Paul's Twitter handle, but he, you were saying mostly if it's not funded, then I mean, what good is it? And I'm, I'm sure both of you will elaborate on those points too. Um, so I think, uh, I think, yeah, it was extremely important as a, uh, a signal to the American public that, hey, we're thinking about these, these things very seriously and we have a plan. Um, it remains to be determined whether implementation can actually um, occur. So we can expand more on the individual plans themselves, but I think, um, I think those are the most important bits so far. Yeah, this, this issue of funding, I think, is a really key one. And it was a really interesting exchange um, at the event that we held on February 28th um, with representatives from the White House, Michael Kratios and Lynn Parker. And the, the full video of which is, is online at cnas.org slash AI. People want to see the exchange. Uh, but just to summarize, you know, we, we talked about this. And uh, one of the things we heard pretty clearly was that the White House does not plan to release publicly a number uh, in terms of total AI funding. Um, and it actually, they don't even have uh, specific metrics for the agencies. So they're asking agencies to 
prioritize AI within their different R&D budgets, um, but there's no additional funding for that. And uh, they're, not, they're not rolling up AI funding across the federal government. They're not gonna re release any kind of figures. Um, and, and they're not setting any kind of clear metrics. What, what's your take on that, Kara? Yeah, I think, again, a plan is, is only as good as the plan to implement it. So while it's really important that America knows that th these are big things that are going to uh, exert heavy uh, weight on their lives in the future, it is also very important to know that there, we have a, a way of dealing with them that is feasible to implement. So I think I think that is a I wouldn't say an oversight. I'm sure they're they're taking it very seriously. But at the same time, you know, yeah, you, you got to put your money where your mouth is. Um, not quite literally, but almost in this case. Um, so I, I, I really think uh, the government itself is remiss in not uh, necessarily allocating these funds or, you know, putting the money in the pockets of the organizations that are going to enact this policy. So I, it's troubling uh, that they're not going to release any of that. I would I would encourage a little more transparency uh, in that regard so that we don't have just these tiny kernels of hope, you know, make them a little bigger for us. But I, I think at the same time, if we kind of push that uh, issue with them using, you know, the platforms that we do have, then maybe we can get some traction. But right now, I mean, I would consider these two strategies in their infancy if they don't have the money to back it up. Um, we had a really interesting discussion overall uh, with Dr. Parker and Mr. Kratios. Um, I, I thought it was a great event. I really enjoyed it. Um, Megan, what, what jumped out at you from that event uh, and from their comments? Yeah. Um, one thing that really stuck out to me that uh, was the, the highlight on like, the American workforce and the disruption that the potentials that AI has for the American people, but also uh, like a very high potential for disruption of, of, of jobs and um, just like our day-to-day -day in society. Um, and I, it, was, it was so stressed in the event, but uh, with the exception of one principle within the executive order um, that states, you know, we're going to implement AI into existing fellowship and its service programs, didn't really focus on, well, more broadly, how is AI going to impact um, the workforce force at large? Um, so I thought that was really fascinating. Um, so in, in Michael Kratzios' opening remarks, he talked about preparing a, a more technical workforce for the jobs of the future, preparing the American people more broadly for, for how this is going to disrupt uh, each of our lives in, in varying ways. Um, and I think that's all, you know, super relevant and important, but um, I'd be interested to see how they're going to enact a, a maybe some complementary programs or complementary initiatives that address more broadly, like how is this really going to impact the, the workforce in the near future? And that really reminded me of something that uh, we wrote in our last report, our last uh, series of AI reports that we released over the summer. And that was our encouragement to uh, encourage talent to develop the skills that are complementary to, not competitive with the jobs that we have today. So their underscoring of that point, I thought, was um, particularly enlightening because if we can just enforce that concept complementary to not competitive with then I think it'll sort of assuage a lot of the fears that people have you know are my jobs going to be replaced wholesale probably not but some of the tasks of your jobs are going to be replaced by AI and related technology so let's cultivate those talents and those skills that help complement not compete with what we're doing today 
Yeah, this was, I think, a key point. And, and in the discussion, Dr. Parker really dug in on this, not surprising given her, her background and expertise, that um, there was this important difference between total jobs being eliminated or changed and certain tasks that people do. And really, um, most jobs will be affected in some way by automation uh, in the coming years as we see different tasks uh, become automated. Uh, I think the best study that I've seen on this is by McKinsey that went below the level of looking at jobs as a whole and down to the specific tasks that people were doing. They basically argued that routine cognitive and physical labor tasks will become automated. Um, and, and it's really possible today as we begin to see that implemented across the economy. And that will affect many jobs. The scale of that disruption is quite remarkable. Uh, their estimate is that roughly half of all tasks currently being done in the US economy could be automated with existing technology, which I just find astonishing. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and the, the really interesting thing though was their argument that less than 5% of jobs could be totally eliminated. And we have seen jobs like that. You know, if you pull out of a parking garage in the Washington DC area, uh, you very well may be interacting with a robot. You feed your, your credit card uh, into the slot and you, you get a receipt out and, and, and the automated parking attendant opens a gate for you. Um, but most jobs will have some blend of automation. The challenge is how do we manage that um, and how do we manage the disruption? I think this was you know, a really important point of the executive order. Um, we heard it you know, strongly from, from Michael Krasius and Lynn Parker, the importance of this. And certainly this president has made jobs a bigger focus of his administration uh, and a bigger priority for him than, than any president in certainly my lifetime which I think is remarkable. What came out to me was a little bit thin on specifics of exactly how we're gonna do that. So the, the sentiment is there, um, and I think as a, as a priority it's there, but how do we really help people adapt? Because unfortunately, you know, uh, executive order is not, not only gonna do it, right? That's not gonna really help people necessarily get the skill training they need to stay competitive in this new AI economy. But I think part of it also is um, there's kind of a binary narrative when it comes to AI these days, right? So AI is either going to destroy us or AI is going to save us. Um, so kind of flipping that around and saying that, yeah, AI has, it's going to give us a lot of opportunities too. So I think around the same time that the McKenzie study came out, there was also um, a recent PricewaterhouseCoopers uh, study that came out too. And it said, and this is only China-based um, and China-centric, but in China, AI and existing technology could displace 26% of existing jobs in the next two decades. But it can also boost employment by only 12% at this point. But 12% is a significant number uh, in that same time frame. So sort of conveying AI as you know, giving people an opportunity to have different jobs that they never would have had before. Um, my old company, Facebook, is hiring tons of data scientists. You know, and we never uh, had those kinds of opportunities before. And people are taking courses and they're studying for these um, these new careers that now exist because of the technology that's enabled those careers to actually, you know, be options for people. So I think sort of highlighting the opportunity. Um, and then uh, Mike also talked about breaking down barriers um, to realizing those opportunities is going to be a big deal, too. So, yes, AI will disrupt the workforce, but not all for the ill. 
Well, really, and, and the jobs that, that AI will be pushing people to are better, more interesting jobs, right? It's things that require more creativity on the part of people. I mean, you know, who wants to be doing sort of database entry and sort of routine tasks that aren't, those aren't as interesting, actually. Um, and so there's opportunity for people to do more interesting and fun things. Um, the important thing is to make sure that people have the skill sets to compete. And one of the things that, that came out in that discussion and comes up again in studies is the importance of education, making sure that people are getting higher education. Um, and of course, we've seen this in, in numbers about uh, wages over time, that this huge divergence in education being a major factor in people's ability to, um, you know, to, to get an education or to, to be successful in the workforce, um, even more important than 30, 40 years ago. Yeah, no, I think like you have to strike a balance. Um, I think like the broader American people have to be prepared that, um, yes, like AI is going to disrupt your jobs, but that doesn't mean that there aren't uh, jobs that are going to be created, like you said, Karen, Paul. Um, and so I think it's it's just a matter of, of making the American people aware and then having programs at the, the state and local governments that um, like retraining and education programs available. Yeah. And the education point is crucial, I think, and something that's, you know, most people don't pay attention to it because it can be kind of squishy. Those of us who exist in this uh, national security environment, when we talk about education, we're, you know, kind of skeptical. Maybe those are for the humanities professors and whatnot to talk about. But yet this is this is absolutely critical and we need to, to treat it as a national security problem right. because look at what China's doing. You know, they have the discipline to invest in the education, especially with regard to AI of their citizenry. If we're not keeping pace, uh, you know, if we're not even where they are at all, then what's going to happen to the next generation coming up after us? So we need to treat it as a national security issue. And I think uh, the, the White House initiative um, and the DOD strategy in and of itself talking about talent emphasizes emphasizing talent is uh, an important step in the right direction. But we need to be having these conversations in national security circles as well. Education needs to be at the forefront of that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, in the uh, report that we did last year, uh, Strategic Competition in Artificial Intelligence, we took the data that McKinsey had done on um, disruption across different sectors of the U.S. economy and cross-referenced that with data in the Bureau of Labor and Statistics on employment. And we looked at the effect based on age and how workers were distributed age-wise. Now, it's, it's, a, it's a rough kind of comparison, but it gives you a sense of, you know, where will some of this disruption fall? Now, what was interesting is it was disproportionately on younger workers, on the sort of 18 to 24-year-old space. Now, the good news is, is that they have the most time to adapt. So if that disruption fell on you know, people in their, in their 50s, it's much harder for them to get reskilled um, and then change careers late in their career. The downside here really is that um, to the extent that we're, we're automating jobs that people are depending upon to pay their way through education, we may be very well pulling the rug out from underneath people um, and, and further sort of dividing those who can afford to get an education and those who, who may not be able to. Um, there's, there are certainly you know, important public policy implications there to keep the U.S. workforce competitive in the age of artificial intelligence. 
And we need to be creative about it, right? We need to be find mechanisms that are non-traditional to do this. Um, I talk a lot about people going in the Department of Defense and then going into private industry and then coming back. Um, there are programs like Tech Congress that allows people to get a taste of the legislative aspect of this too. So when you know, you're know you talking about the, the bridge between the public and the private sector and then the generations that are coming up and the education that they need and the talent that we need to actively cultivate, then I think it's really important that people get a taste of both sectors and that the government makes it easier for people to do so because right now that's not always the case so I think if we start to think in ways that are uh, with a little bit more imagination um, we can kind of knock out some of the the biggest pain points that we're going to see going forward with regard to the development of AI. Absolutely that's a critical point and really valuable for not just AI but a whole range of different technical areas where the government can draw in that kind of expertise. Well thank you both for joining us today um, thanks for spending in this podcast. Thanks, thanks Paul. Paul. All right, thanks everyone for listening and you can find more of our information out at cnas.org slash AI. Thanks very much.